Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Even with all I know and have learned deep diving into grief, it can still be hard showing up for loved ones who are grieving. So I'm really excited to have discovered Grief Warrior. Sending a Grief Warrior box is a way that friends and loved ones can say, I'm thinking of you and acknowledging your grief. Each box has thoughtfully chosen items, including a journal, anxiety relief essential oil, and so much more. My favorites are the In Morning Badge, letting others know you're in pain without having to say so, and the Ways to Help Notepad, which simplifies asking for help with tasks like laundry or errands without feeling weird for asking for help. The Grief Warrior Box provides healing and comfort, and most importantly, it's a communication from you. Head over to agriefwarrior.com and enter GGG20 for 20% off your purchase of a Grief Warrior Box. Check our show notes for more info on Grief Warrior. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Courtney Hameister was 28 years old when she had her first panic attack. It was the result of an OCD episode that followed her father's death. Although this was the first time she'd had such an experience, she had struggled with fear and shame since she was a young child. For much of her life, she played it safe rather than engage in activities that could trigger her anxiety. When she was eight years old, she climbed up to the high dive at a community pool, walked to the end of the diving board, and froze. Her anxiety grew as the other kids cajoled her to jump. In the end, she climbed back down to the groans of the kids who had been waiting in line behind her. It was from this experience that she recognized she was not a risk taker. Courtney recently released a fun tell-all book confronting her fears by stepping outside her comfort zone. Her book, Okay, Fine, Whatever, channels the same brash sense of humor she displayed as a host and head writer for the nationally syndicated radio show, Livewire. Courtney is a very funny person, and her escapades make for a lighthearted vacation read. But her book is not free of difficult and emotional subject matter. Courtney's father was an accomplished physician who struggled with bipolar disorder. In the early pages of her book, Courtney reveals that her father intentionally ended his life. I was struck both by the surprise that her father had died by suicide and by the fact that she never used that word in describing her father's death. Growing up, my mother's suicide was a toxic weight that I carried but rarely talked about. At different times, I felt abandonment, guilt, shame, and anxiety too. As I read Courtney's book, the omission of that word, suicide, sat heavily with me. My guess is that it comes from a little over 20 years of, you know, when people say, oh, is your father still with with us? 
I'm one of those people who actually says it. There are people who have lost someone to suicide who, um, if someone asks, they're just like, oh, you know, he passed away, you know, and might might have another explanation. Oh, but yeah. I, I'm one of the people I've one of the, I'm one of the, the people who uh, I will say it, but I try to I think I very, very seldom say he committed suicide. I say that he ended his own life. Um, sometimes I explain the exact way like he was a he was a physician. So he knew the pill that he could take to stop his heart within a few seconds and he took it. And so um, I think that it's just you probably know this, right? You know that as soon as you mention it, the conversation's going to take a turn. Yeah. You know, I mean, totally. it's just if and and if no matter the situation that you're in, you know that that it's it's just going to kind of you don't want to bring people down, but at the same time, I don't want to lie, and I also don't want to contribute to the stigma of suicide. Right. My father fought. You know, he he struggled with that disease for his whole life. He was 55, and he was so accomplished. You know, he was uh, he went on two tours in Vietnam. He graduated uh, from West Point. Then became, you know, at 33, he went to med school and became a doctor. He was a family family physician, and so he was, and so he actually managed to do all of those things uh, with this struggling with this disease that right. was, you know, uh, bipolar disorder is really one of the most dangerous mental illnesses out there. I think maybe besides schizophrenia, just because um, because of the the manic episodes, right? Because yeah. you think that you're you feel amazing and you stop taking your meds, and that's when it gets really dangerous. So I, I don't, I'm not ashamed of of what happened with my dad. But I do think it's such a like a showstopper. I mean, like you yep. said, you say that word and it's like, dun, dun, dun. well, and especially in a book that I think it's a humor, it's a humorous memoir, right? I'm yeah. a humor writer. Right. Um, uh, and I've been, you know, I, I wrote a couple hundred essays for Livewire that were always humorous, but so so trying to figure out that balance for a book is, you know, as you know, there were chapters that were a little heavier, right? you know, um, and there were moments that were a little heavier, but you've got to figure out a way to to have that balance where you don't want to take people too far down so that they can't come back up again. Totally. Or that it feels inc- incongruous, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, or, yeah, um, th- that it's just like, this doesn't belong in this book. This, my God, you know? <laughs> well, I think you did that very beautifully, but I, I also... It did make me pause a little bit, like, wait, I want to know more here. And right. And, and I also feel like when you're a child, you don't know what's normal. I mean, what you're living feels normal, mm-hmm. right? I'm wondering at what point you started to recognize what was happening with your dad. I know in the book you said he was sort of removed from the rest of the family in a way. Yeah. I mean, um, some of it was just simply because he wasn't there. He went on two tours in Vietnam, and then he was at med school, and, you know, he had a residency. So he just wasn't around, like physically wasn't around. Right. So he was distanced literally from the family. Um, but the time—and I— you know, you, you as a kid, you notice things that you that you don't think that your parents necessarily know that you notice. But, but my my mother did an exceptional job of hiding this. Yeah. And my and I think that it took a tremendous toll on her. My father didn't want her to tell anyone what was going on with him, so he would have a manic episode, and you know, friends would ask, and she would be like, "Yeah, you gotta ask Pete. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you gotta ask him." And he was definitely diagnosed at a point where your mom. 
your mom knew what was going on or or was there guesswork at all? Um, he was actually diagnosed at West Point and they met when he was at West Point. So I don't know, actually. I've never asked my mother when he revealed his bipolar disorder to her. Right. And I actually don't even know if he was diagnosed as bipolar because it was 1962 when he was diagnosed. So I'm not even sure if they called it that then. Right. right. But, but they knew that, that he had a mental illness. But And he was still allowed to fight. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, he he went on two tours. So I think that because he was medicated, that's a really good question, though. And evidently he was quite effective in Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Effective>. <laughs> evidently he killed some people. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Which actually I just found out like a couple, like even a few months ago. How'd you find out? I, he had told me that he was just an advisor. Like, to to the troops like to, somehow <laughs> and i just i i know it's odd and and but i never really delved that far into it and then i we were at dinner with my family and i think my someone asked about it and my brother said and i responded oh he was just he was i think that yeah he was just an advisor he really was sitting at a desk and my brother just looked at me and said are you insane like he has medals you know, to prove, and I and I've seen the medals, but I was I don't I don't I don't know if you you win medals for paper pushing. That's amazing, you know. <laughs> so that's a whole other story that I could tell. And I mean, it was interesting that you said I wanted to know more about this. And and when you're writing, you know, this book is sort of about a year in my life, and right. so there were there were choices that I had to make. You know, yeah. but of course, you know, people are going to want to know more. Um, but in terms of when I kind of realized it, it was when my father was hospitalized. I was mm. nine. And he was hospitalized. And I remember visiting him in the hospital. I didn't realize how that it was something that we were supposed to be ashamed of until I saw him. And I saw how ashamed he was. We were sitting at a picnic table outside and I could see the way that he held his body. I was like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> like, mm. he's not, he's, because uh, I just thought he was sick. I was told he was sick. Right. But this is a different kind of sick that you're supposed to be ashamed of. But not you're. But no, not no, exactly. No, that's what I learned when I was a kid, and of a hundred percent. Like, you know, I was I was wrong. Our culture was wrong, and our our culture continues to be wrong about it. Yeah, yeah. So we really haven't come that far, or have we? I believe that we absolutely have. Like, I, I think that that um, that was back in like seventy six. I think. Yeah, and. Absolutely. I mean, people, it's great. I think um, there are famous people who who discuss their mental illness, their struggles with anxiety and depression. But it's always this, everyone's always like, oh, you're so brave. And no one's like, oh, I broke my leg. And oh, you're so brave to wear that cast and just let everybody know that you broke it. <laughs> you know? Like, I never thought of it like that. But... Yeah. It's ins- Oh, she's so brave to tell people she has cancer. You know? Holy crap. You know, it's, it's just... Um, so, so I, I, I think that we have come a long way, and I think the more people who struggle with it and are honest about it, um, and I think that right now, we're, you know, anxiety is having a moment, unquestionably. Um, you know, with what's going on in the world, significantly pe- more people are struggling, struggling at least with situational anxiety, if yeah. it, if it's not clinical. So people, I think, are a lot more willing to to reveal it and recognize how pervasive it is which I definitely realized once I wrote my book and I, everyone I knew was coming, you know, and saying, oh, thanks for writing this. I just, I've been struggling with anxiety for X number of years. And I just thought, how, how have we never had this conversation, you know? Because I've always been pretty open with my anxiety. And you've recognized it from 
as early as being on that uh, diving board? I think that that, I mean, it's interesting because it was never as sort of powerful or acute when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I just sort of had this kind of low buzzing, I think it was generalized anxiety for a while, very kind of low buzzing generalized anxiety for the majority of my life until it was about a year after my father passed away that I had a very acute OCD episode. Once it was out there, I've just been always just been one of those people who just doesn't care what people know about me. I don't know why that is, but yeah, there are a lot of people who were like, I don't understand how you could put this in a book. (laughs) If you or anyone you know is struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, where we help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast March 5th through 8th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. In addition to grieving the loss of your dad, you're grieving about your being in the world too and this anxiety that you were feeling it was keeping you from doing things. I also had a ton of anxiety connected to relationships um, and my sort of fear of rejection. And I also, I think I have tons of grieving around my body and my weight and the amount of time that I've wasted thinking about it and worrying about it and crapping all over myself. And I'm, uh, um, regret is a tremendous, is something that I carry with myself everywhere I go for, and, you know, I had tremendous regret about my complicated relationship with my dad. Mm. Um, and I think that that my anxiety, my grief is, <laughs> is around that regret. My grief is around the lost time. And that, um, and then I think that, that it's all sort of interwoven Right. It's just like, oh, you know, the, the anxiety that has stopped me from, you know, I think that we all have uh, like professional jealousy. You know, I think it's with writers. It is just absolutely deadly. Like you know, comparisonitis. Oh, good God. Yeah. I mean, it's and it absolutely is. Um, oh, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. Right. I mean, it is an absolute joy thief. Right. I, I mean, you. I remember a friend who um, who was really upset because um, her third book in a series uh, was coming out and it wasn't going to be it was it, evidently you have to be higher than 15 on the New York Times bestseller list in order to like make it into airports and stuff. And I just remember I hadn't had a book out yet. And I remember her. She was really upset, you know, and and I remember thinking, you know, why? Why are you complaining right now? <laughs> like because it's under, like because it's over number fifteen, but it's still on the list. Oh my god! And you have a book, um, but then once you have a book, you realize, oh, there are all of these things. There are all these lists that I wish that I was on and that I'm not on, and that my friends are on. You know, and and I think that that um, when you're anxious, there are many things that you don't try, that you don't put yourself 
even in the running for. I mean, it's astonishing that I got this book, like that I, because I really sort of had to be cajoled by my one by my wonderful agent who was kind enough to continue to press me on it. Um, she wasn't my agent at the time, but she just, she kept writing me and saying, remember when I wrote you and I think this column might be a book? Just checking. Do you, do you want to be an author? You know, and I think that, you know, I have a lot of friends who have that fear of, um, and for me it was, what if, because I'd always wanted to be an author, I'd always wanted to be perceived as a writer and have that kind of respect. And what if I try to do this thing and it's a failure? What am I? What have I always been, right? Because you always mm-hmm. imagine that you're going to be this thing. And so I think that that fear really, you know, kept me from from trying. Validating your fears is so stymieing. That's what keeps you in, in, in action, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just had this conversation with my son. I said, you know, key to happiness, one of the keys is not to compare yourself to others. He says, that's not possible because I'm competitive and I love being competitive. <laughs> I said, okay. That's difficult, right? It is difficult. And we we were at an impasse because I was not able to discern between comparing and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And he saw them as the same thing. Well, I mean, to me, it's that there are certain situations wherein being competitive is logical and healthy, and there are situations wherein it's not. Right. You know, I think in, like, popularity contests, when you see if, you know, oh, a friend has this many friends on Facebook and I don't have that many, that's, an I believe, an unhealthy situation in which to feel competitive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I was once asked to judge a, a kid's contest at this baby loves disco event Mm -hmm. i was up there on stage and i was like i can't i refuse to choose a one child over another child (laughs) and actually when i signed up for this thing i had no idea i was going to be asked to do that it's like you cannot ask an adult to say one child is cuter than another it's ridiculous there's a part in your book that really fascinates me, too, and you're in this relationship with this guy named Jake. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a real terrible tragedy occurs with somebody very close, I think an employee of his, right? Well, she was she was sort of like a little sister to him. Yeah. yeah. So, she was very close. Far more than an employee. The way I read your description of what followed her accident was that his grief came between the two of you Mm -hmm. in a very big way. I think that we should have ended regardless. She was in a terrible accident, and I think that he had felt so responsible for her. He'd brought her to Oregon to work um, at his store, and and I think that he once the accident happened, you know, uh, it was a car, it was a terrible car accident, and she ended up passing away. Uh, but she 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 was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and he was dealing with the police and the hospital and the insurance, and he sort of took it all on, even though her parents were around. He was really trying to take everything off of them, so all they could do is 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 just try to help her live. And he had been an extremely affectionate person, and we'd been together for a couple of years at that point. And he would sit as far away from me in a room as possible. And when I touched him, he would. Uh, it was as if I, I my hands were electric, and he would pull away. And it was very difficult for me because she. I I was not even close to as close 
to her as he was. But I was also just struggling with how devastating this was because she was extremely well-loved as a person. She was extraordinary and, and sweet and everyone loved her. And it wasn't just that. It was just that I wanted to to comfort him. I wanted to help in some way. And it could have been—I've never asked him why. You know, I, we've, we've spoken in the ensuing years a couple times, and I've never really asked him why that was, but may, and maybe this was a rationalization on my part, but what I imagined was what I saw him doing was just stealing himself and mm-hmm. um, believing that he was the only one who could do all of this. And I just thought being touched, being comforted would break him. And and I can see it. I can see that that even just just the reminder that you can be comforted, that there's there's vulnerability in it, and and there is in our culture this this sense that vulnerability isn't okay. And the yeah. moment, and I think that the moment that he could, would have admitted to himself that he was breakable, he would have folded in on himself. <laughs> that was the the way that I thought. That was the, my way of explaining why he didn't want to be comforted. But who knows? You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's just like you never know how you're going to react in a situation like that. It's horrifying and devastating. And when situations like that arise is when cracks in relationships really reveal themselves, reveal themselves, you know, and we we literally, I think, broke up in the graveyard, you know, at her funeral. That was the end of it. It was dark. It was dark days. And that was, you know, speaking about chapters that, you know, does this belong in this book? But it really, I think, I was trying to explain where I was coming from, from a relationship standpoint. You know, I'd yeah. been, uh, I was, I, th- I think, well, I would think I was 33 when I met him. He was the first person I ever fell in love with. He was my first relationship. He was my first sexual relationship. You know, and that's kind of late when for not a Mormon. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I felt like I kind of needed to explain where I was coming from. Something we don't always talk about with grief is how financially vulnerable we can be. That's why it's important to have someone on your team that you can trust. My financial planner, Leslie Tyzak at Edward Jones, is that person. She looks at what is important to me when helping with everything from managing budgets, cash flow, and where to invest and save. I got to know her when I was setting up my kids' college savings accounts. She is someone I can count on to help me and my kids optimize our resources to make the best choices when it comes to preparing for our futures. Schedule a meeting with Leslie to talk about your goals. Her contact info is in the show notes. There's this line in your book that I just love, and I can't even remember what the other half of it is, but you say one half of falling in love is gratitude for that person's ability to forgive the worst parts of you. Right. It's like, well, one half of it is um, is falling in love with the best parts of them. And yeah. the other half is gratitude for them forgiving the worst parts of you. <laughs> That's so perfect. Well, I think, uh, and it was, yeah, it was, it came after a story about me peeing my pants and on the floor of my <laughs> boyfriend's kitchen. Uh, so it was kind of the first time that he saw my humanity. I think it changes from person to person, and it depends on how much you have been beating the beating the crap out of yourself, I think, throughout your life. But it's scary to reveal, you know, your uh, foibles. And especially, you know, it's difficult to have... Um, a mental illness, I think, you know, to and be in a relationship. Oftentimes, 
as we reveal each thing, right, as we reveal each little thing that we've, you know, and you kind of, I think we hoard them for a little while. We try to (laughs) hide them for as long as we can. But it's also, at some point, it's like, well, I have to say this. And each time you do, and each time that the person responds, like, either like it's nothing or, you know, says that they can accept that, I feel grateful. And I feel closer to them, and I and it, and it obviously makes you feel more loved by them. And I think that security actually allows you to fall deeper in love with them. Mm. You know, <laughs> so Aww. it's just like you feel like you're giving me like a Valentine's Day <laughs> boost talk or something, or Galentine's Day. Galentine's- if that's what you oh, celebrate. You. you might celebrate oh, like Galentine's Day, which I think is the day before. I don't know, but Valentine's I can, I yeah. think every day is Galentine's Day. Yeah, can we just? Go with sure, that. absolutely. You know, it's interesting what you're saying about those hidden. I have this uh, idea or thought of like the more that I keep from revealing these things, that whether I'm embarrassed by them or there's that hold any kind of stigma, it just increases the toxicity of those things. I absolutely. feel like so just revealing them is just like, oh, yeah, what a relief. Just get that out and then. It doesn't own you, and you just feel like, why the hell was I worrying about that for so long? Well, I think, too, it's the response that you get that that, that makes it smaller, right? Like, it's, it's this giant snowball in your brain. And generally, we reveal these things to people, friends. I mean, when you reveal them to someone who cares about you, their response is, I mean, how often do you hear, oh, God, that happened last week to me? <laughs> or, I do that all the time. You know, you were saying that you um, beat yourself up. Oh, yeah. A bunch. I'm really good at it. <laughs> but I was thinking, like, gosh, you have accomplished so much. I mean, in so many different avenues, writing and acting and hosting and uh, producing and all kinds of things. And has that helped with you beating yourself up less? Isn't that so funny? I mean, I hear you say that and, and I... I mean, all I all I ever focus on is what I haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. Like what I I chose not to have kids. I just felt like I would not have been good at that. I'm not patient, and I like sleeping. There's lots of reasons, but <laughs> that's a really that's an important reason. <laughs> exactly. Sleep. So I have this sense that I want to leave something. Like I want to do something and and leave the world a better place than it was when I came into it on all this stuff. And and it's so funny because I just. I do need to sit down and really give myself credit for what I have done, you know. That's, I think, very much kind of, the, it was the point of my book, right? Part of the reason that I, so I spent this year doing things that scared me and then writing about it. To t- What I was trying to do was teach my brain that everything was going to be okay and see also if I could shift those neural pathways, get out of those ruts in my brain that said that everything was going to suck and that everything does suck. There were ways in which that worked a little bit and there were ways in which it didn't. Getting kind of stuck in that. And, And I think it just goes back to that comparison thing where, yeah, you know what? You haven't accomplished that thing that your friend accomplished, but just kind of look at the list that you've checked off. You know, it's almost as if we we all need to just sort of carry that list around with us. Not a to-do list, but a have-done list. Have-done list. That's brilliant. <laughs> right. And just just be like, this, this is what you did, you know? And this is what you continue to do, and this is what you're working on. And and it, it, you cannot compare it because your life has been nothing like theirs. You know, and you have you also have no idea what their struggles are. That's so true. And I also think this 
as humans, well, particularly American humans, believe that we're immortal in a way. So instead of living really in the moment, we tend to be thinking, what's next? What's next? What's next? There's always something better out there. There's always something we're missing out on that, that we could be doing. And so that causes us to really appreciate what's happening in the now. Right. I think we we don't at all. Like as soon as you accomplish something, the next thing you're thinking of is how you get to the next step or how you get to the next level. There's actually not a door there. You know, there's not, you're not, you're outside right now, right. you know? And, and you put a door like in this beautiful, like, you know, you were out in the woods and you threw a door in front of you for some weird reason, you know, because your brain's used to doing that. Right. It's extraordinary what your brain gets used to doing, I think. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.